Good evening. Uh, welcome to Tuesday evening chapel. Welcome back. I was here last week. Where were you? Just checking, just checking, just checking. Speaker of the evening is Dr. Tom King. Uh, all of you have enjoyed him in Introduction to Old Testament or Biblical Interp or one of the Old Testament courses. Would you welcome him? Let's say our phrase together. Hear my Lord, purify me. Again. Hear my Lord, purify me. Now stand and let's pray it. Shall we? Hear my Lord, purify me. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the word. The impurity laws of the Bible are contained in Leviticus 12 through 15. We're not going to read all of that material, but I am going to give you some excerpts the highlights. Beginning at Leviticus 12 verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, she shall be unclean for seven days as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days she shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Then chapter 13 the opening three verses the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priests. And the priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Chapter 15, the opening three verses. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This, moreover, shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness whether his body allows it, its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. And verse 16. Now if a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all his body in water and be unclean until evening. Verse 19, when a woman has a discharge, if her discharge in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. And verses 31 through 33. 
Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for the one with a discharge and for the man who has a seminal emission so that he is unclean by it and for the woman who is ill because of menstrual impurity and for the one who has a discharge whether a male or a female or a man who lies with an unclean woman. This too is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am confident that scripture reading blessed your heart. <laughs> Our chapel theme this trimester, as you know, is purify me. I intended to ignore this theme as I have past chapel themes and just preach on whatever the Lord prompted. Forgive me, chaplain, I need time with confession. However, this year, the theme has grasped hold of me and won't let go. The Spirit has pressed upon me our focus on purity. So much so, I have been bathing all trimester with ivory soap, which we all know is 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. I read recently that Ivory's slogan claiming such purity originated in the 1800s when Harley Proctor of Proctor and Gamble coined the phrase after the soap was analyzed by college chemistry professors and independent laboratories and the results demonstrated that the ingredients in a bar of ivory soap which were not identified as pure soap totaled 56 one hundredths percent. So Proctor subtracted this from 100 and derived the slogan, 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. So does the Bible care that much about purity? How pure does God wish for us to be? As Christians, are we more or less than 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure? There are a number of texts in the Bible related to purity or images of purity. I was surprised to discover there's a significant strand of discussion related to purity which focuses on giving one's best and committing every aspect of life to God. I had assumed, as our chapel theme implies, that our cry, purify me, would result in God alone doing a cleansing work which would remove all my imperfections and make me clean. I should simply sit still as if a small child being scrubbed in the tub by mother. Like Isaiah holding still while that seraphim touches the cleansing hot coal to his lips. In contrast, however, Alongside God's miraculous work of cleansing, the Bible calls God's people to do the work of changing their conduct and acting in ways which reflect purity. As we shall see, purity is closely associated with holiness and with life. As is often the case, the Bible does not end with merely being pure, 
but it presses us to doing that which makes us pure. We're familiar with the metaphor of the refiner's fire, which is used to separate and purify precious metals as silver and gold. In Malachi chapter 3, we read of the messenger of the Lord who will purify the worship of the children of Israel. Like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, the first ivory perhaps, the messenger of the Lord will cleanse the worship of the children of Israel. The concern here is for right sacrifices and offerings which are pleasing to the Lord. Earlier in Malachi chapter 1, the prophet had judged the descendants of Levi for offering polluted sacrifices to the Lord. They were accused of bringing blemished and blind and lame and sick animals for sacrifice. And to correct this, the messenger of the Lord will purify the priests so they may present to the Lord offerings of righteousness. The work of God in his people results in the good work of righteousness by his people. Another image of purity is reflected in the law of God by those somewhat cryptic prohibitions against mixing things. Leviticus 19.19 19 forbids the mixing of two kinds of cattle, two kinds of seed in your field, and two kinds of material in your clothing. A similar passage in Deuteronomy 22 forbids sowing two kinds of seed in your vineyard, plowing with both an ox and a donkey together, and wearing material that is mixed with wool and linen. Now in our society, where hybrids, compounds, and synthetics are all the rage, the command not to mix things seems not only archaic but unreasonable. Nevertheless, in Leviticus, this instruction appears in the midst of legislation under the heading, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19.2 Two weeks ago, Dr. Powers highlighted for us this same connection between purity and holiness in relation to Peter's quote of this very passage from Leviticus 19. So I feel I'm in good company in recognizing the connection. Of course, I'm referring to Peter and Dr. Powers. <laughs> as a representative system, as a representative system, the sacrificial laws and the impurity regulations point themselves to foundational values which are directly applicable to all of us. Though we do not slaughter animals for sacrifice and we really are not concerned with segregating kinds of cattle and types of seed or ensuring that our clothing consists of only one type of fabric, we should be concerned with the underlying intent of these laws. The intent of animal sacrifice is another sermon. For this message we need to recognize the prohibitions against mixing things reflect a concern for purity. The medieval Jewish commentator Abravanel wrote in regard to these prohibitions, I the Lord being one in my every aspect detest all combinations of opposites so how can you wish to combine hatred with love? 
Abravanel refers to the oneness of God in the sense of being uncontaminated, uncorrupted, untainted, undiluted. That is, God is pure and holy. Likewise, as we quoted from Leviticus 19, God calls his people to be holy, uncontaminated, uncorrupted, untainted, undiluted. In other words, God calls us to be unmixed and therefore pure. The biblical laws against mixing things reflect this concern for purity of life and character. The intention is even more obvious in relation to the prohibitions against worshiping God on every high hill and under every green tree as expressed in Deuteronomy 12. The command to worship God only at the place which the Lord God chooses is intended to keep Israel from mixing their worship of God with the idolatry of their neighbors. Accordingly, Israel was to avoid worshiping God on every high hill and under every green tree because those are the places where the nations served their false gods and offered sacrifices to their idols. It's easy to recognize the concern here is to keep the worship of God pure and unmixed with idolatry. It's evident that the intent of these commands exhorts us to uncompromising, wholehearted pursuit of holiness, reflecting a pure, unmixed commitment to God. So the intent of the law does not allow us to mix righteousness and wickedness. It does not allow us to mix kind words and profanity. It does not allow us to mix literature and pornography. It does not allow us to mix marriage and infidelity. It does not allow us to mix, you fill in the blank. It does not allow us to live two lives, one sacred and the other profane. Rather, the intent of the law presses us to invite God into every realm of our being. This is reflected in another set of obscure and seemingly irrelevant regulations. That is, the impurity laws of Leviticus 12 through 15. The impurity laws might be considered among the hard sayings or hard passages of the Bible. They speak of semen, menstruation, blood, and disease. At least the Bible doesn't talk about sex. Well, there is Song of Songs, but that's another sermon. For the church today, the impurity laws may be considered extraneous, repugnant, even bizarre. They remind us that God's written revelation in the Bible was originally inspired in the context of ancient and superstitious societies. Though Old Testament laws reflect such an environment, God's rendering of this legislation strips from them all vestiges of pagan aberration and invests them with God's message and God's values. That's the key to understanding the impurity laws and, in fact, the entire sacrificial system. God's revelation came in the context of an ancient Near Eastern society 
drowning in antiquated superstition, primeval ritual, and archaic trepidation. Instead of ignoring that culture, God provided legislation which acknowledges and even reflects its mentality, but divests it of all pagan belief and reforms it with God's theological message. With this in mind, we can pursue our chapel theme of purity by discovering the theological concern embedded in the laws governing impurity. Regarding the impurity system, Jacob Milgram has written, some benign skin diseases are diagnosed and quarantined, passing by the spate of known contagious diseases of the day. Genital discharges are declared impure, but not issues from other orifices. These are the subjects of the impurity laws. They sound bizarre, but as symbols, they reveal deeper, basically ethical values that remain relevant to this day. Identifying the theology behind the impurity laws has been a challenge for scholars for centuries. Most explanations treat the impurity laws of the Bible as remnants of pagan influence, as if somehow tolerated by God within God's greater written revelation. Accordingly, we find interpretations based on a need for order and wholeness in the face of a mixed and unmanageable creation, or the threat of supernatural powers emanating from unclean objects and persons, or ancient taboos reflecting the fears of an ignorant society seeking to appease a pantheon of gods through ritual acts. Such discussions attempt to link these understandings to some theological construct consistent with the character of God, but ultimately fall short. I am indebted to one of my teachers, Jacob Milgram, for his penetrating insight into the ethics and theology of the sacrificial system, including these impurity laws. The rationale behind the impurity laws expressed in the rest of our discussion is founded on his illumination of the biblical text. Now imagine with me, imagine with me all the items that we might put on a list of things we label impure or unclean. Such a list might include mud, dirt, Pigs, spiders, snakes, skunks, mosquitoes, trash, clumps of wet hair pulled out of the drain, toenails, belly button fuzz, tofu. Although I must assure my wife I would not put tofu on the list myself. Red meat, that I'd put on there. Eggplant, bacteria, viruses, disease, manure, all kinds of things. If we took the time, I'm sure we could create a very lengthy list. In light of this, however, it's most revealing that the list of items labeled unclean in the biblical impurity laws is limited to only three sources. A corpse or carcass, scale disease, and genital discharges. This is actually quite astounding when we consider that of the many contagious diseases known in the ancient world, only a few types of scale disease are labeled impure. 
And of all the secretions of the human body, including mucus and perspiration, and especially urine and feces, only genital discharges are labeled impure in the biblical impurity laws. In contrast, Israel's neighbors in the ancient world identified all sorts of items in their impurity taboos, including cut hair and nails in Persia and India, and a newborn with its mother in Greece and Egypt. So in God's legislation, why is impurity limited to only these three sources? A corpse or carcass, scale disease, and genital discharges. The answer lies in one common denominator reflected in all three sources of impurity. It's the concept of death. Obviously a corpse, a carcass, reflect death. A genital discharge from a male involves semen and from a female involves vaginal blood, whether from menstruation or following childbirth. Semen and vaginal blood represent forces of life and their loss represents death. Semen is readily recognized as a source of life, therefore its loss would represent the loss of potential life reflecting death. Blood is explicitly linked to life in the Bible, as reflected in the following text, Genesis 9. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Deuteronomy 12, only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life. Enduring men's, and, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Vaginal blood is related all the more to life, as its flow after childbirth or during menstruation are clearly associated with the reproduction of life. The types of scale disease labeled impure in the Bible reflect the appearance of approaching death. The wasting away of the body is the common characteristic of the highly visible form of scale disease labeled impure in the Bible. It symbolizes the process of death. As an example, when Miriam is afflicted with scale disease, often translated leprosy, Moses prays in Numbers 12, Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away. Leviticus 13 and 14 include moldy fabrics and fungus houses as impure, not because they actually have scale disease, but they give the appearance of it. That is the same appearance of decay and death. Like the sacrificial system, the impurity laws are representative in nature. The impurity laws symbolize elements which reflect death. Their purpose is to remind Israel of the sanctity of life. The purpose of the symbolic impurity system is to remind Israel of the divine imperative to reject death and choose life. It's the same imperative presented in Moses' famous sermon near the end of Deuteronomy. 
Notice the repetition of the words life and live seven times in this excerpt from Moses' speech. I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and statutes and judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live. You and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. In relation to the impurity laws, Milgram further writes, Although loss of vaginal blood and semen is a necessary part of the human cycle, its symbolic value, representing loss of life, is a process unalterably opposed by Israel's God, the source of her life. You shall keep my laws and my norms by the pursuit of which you shall live. I am the Lord. Impurity and holiness are antonyms. Impurity is associated with death, while holiness stands for life. Accordingly, in this symbolic system, holiness and life overcome impurity and death. The system represents the victory of life over death. It should be easy for us as Christians to recognize in the impurity laws an expression of God's commitment to resurrection and to life over death. In this symbolic system, impurity further represents that which has potential to interfere with a relationship to God, including neglect of that relationship. The impurity system serves as a constant reminder to maintain relationship with God. God seeks to be involved in every aspect of our lives. Even the most private, mundane, irritating, embarrassing aspects of our being, such as seminal emissions and menstrual cycles, are subject to our relationship with our Creator. We have a calendar in our bathroom, comes from some ministry group, and the quote for October just happens to read, Nothing is too big, too little, or too dirty to talk to God about. It reminds me of that point in every child's life when they realize they're too old to be seen naked in front of mom and dad anymore. When the naked child hides from mom and yells at her for passing by the line of vision as she goes about her work, the child may be met with a response like, I gave birth to you and you don't have anything I haven't seen before. In relationship to God, we may need to remind ourselves He is our Creator. He knows how our bodies function. He made them this way. It may seem obtrusive, 
but our creator, creator wants to be involved in every aspect of our being. The impurity laws remind us to stop in the midst of the most tedious elements of life and acknowledge God, recognize His grace, even in places which and times when we'd rather be left alone. This is the epitome of praying without ceasing. It brings us back to our theme of purity in terms of pure commitment to relationship with God. Nothing is to be left out of our relationship to God. He does not want just 99 and 44 one hundredths percent of us. He wants all 100% of our being pure and unmixed. No compromise, no distraction. Even with respect to those areas of life which are so personal and wearisome that we don't want to share them with anyone, our Creator wants to be involved. I'm sure we're grateful we're not required to bring animal sacrifices or stay outside the camp for seven days or undergo ritual bathing or perform extra washings of our clothes every time we find ourselves impure. Nevertheless, we should allow such times to continually remind us of God's precious gift of life. We should be grateful for breath itself. We should act with reverence for life. And in the midst of life's most mundane moments, we should stop and acknowledge our gracious Creator and seek ways to enrich this foundational relationship of our existence. Indeed, Lord, we ask that you would consume us. We pray that you would cleanse us through and through and fill us 100% with your Holy Spirit and carry us forth as your instruments for the advancement of your kingdom. Amen.